Welcome to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce with Cindy Stibbard. Cindy is ready to have those candid and unfiltered conversations so you know how to move forward in your marriage. You'll hear inspiring and insightful discussions surrounding this taboo subject to help you feel confident in your decision. Now, here's your host, Cindy Stibbard. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce Redefined. I'm your host, Cindy Stibbard. And I want to thank you for joining us this week. And I have a really very interesting episode today planned that I know that you are going to want to hear. I have a returning guest. You are my first returning guest, Lauren LaRusso. She is a therapist and she specializes in affairs and affair partners and helping couples and individuals navigating affairs and the aftermath of it. And this is such a hot topic since I've had Lauren on the show last time. I think in the last month, there was 11,000 downloads just for her episode alone. So I know that this is something that you guys want to hear because it is something that we want to talk about. Affairs are not a fun conversation. I know that a lot of you are probably cringing, being like, oh my gosh, I'm, we're talking about this again. And we are because it's a hard topic and it's a topic that's stigmatized. It's a topic that needs to be addressed in society because the more we understand it and learn about it and be aware of it, then the more that we can start to understand how people are navigating this and why they're navigating it in a certain way. Because affairs aren't something that just happen by chance or random without some sense of thought. Yes, we can all have those moments, not all maybe, but sometimes we can have those moments of no thought in the, in the situation. But when we're talking about affairs that have been you know, thought through and experienced by people on both sides, there are things that are going on that it's important for us to learn from and talk about. And me for one, I was always that people-pleasing, Miss little Miss Perfect girl growing up, never thinking that, first of all, I'd ever be with someone who had an affair. I would, I thought in myself, I would leave the, the moment that it happened, but I didn't. I was with a spouse who had a couple, at least that I knew about. And then myself, I ended up ending my marriage, having an affair and leaving for someone else. And this is something that I never, ever, ever would have thought that I would do. And so I think it's also a lesson of never say never because you just never know. Now I know for sure I would never do it again because of the experience on being on both sides of that was horrific, horrific. And it was devastating for both sides. And so learning and growing and going through that experience is something that has ultimately changed me and knowing that I would never choose that that path again, nor choose to be with someone who who chose that either. But today, Lauren and I are going to talk about something interesting because a lot of you hear so much out there, especially all over social media about narcissism and narcissists and that narcissists are the cheaters. And, you know, these are the people that have these personality issues and disorders. But there's also some elements to this that that almost apply to the flip side. When you are with a narcissist and you are the one who steps out of your marriage, why does that happen and where does this come from? So Lauren, welcome back to the show. And I'm so glad that you're you're rejoining me today. Thank you. Me too. Thanks for having me. This is a, a really important topic because there are a lot of people who are floating on the outside of their marriage. Their marriage doesn't feel the way that they hoped it would or the way it began feeling or the way that they want it to feel, but they're not sure exactly why. And then they find themselves in a vulnerable position to an outside relationship. Yeah. so we can talk about all of that and how that happens and and why. Yeah, I love that. And that's what we'll dive into because I think this whole term narcissism, you know, it, it can be very obvious for, for an overt kind of narcissist person. Like they're pretty clear on how, you know, self-assured they are and really grandiose personality and they're the cheater and controller and the, those types of things. But there's also these subtypes of narcissism, which I also only learned since I got divorced because of the confusion I felt in my marriage of why do I feel so confused all the time here. Why are, is, do I always feel the one that's at fault? And there's this disconnect of even his own behaviors and his own indiscretions were somehow my fault. And so I was living in this marriage, like treading water thinking, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. And why is this happening? 
feeling so disconnected that it was all my fault. And then I ended up stepping out of my marriage. And you had posted, maybe it was even last week, about signs that if you're with a covert narcissist, why you can have this temptation or situation where you end up stepping out of your marriage and why. And that hit me. And I think I commented on your post and there's like 20 other people that are like, yeah, me too. You know, because you hit the nail on the head in terms of identifying how it feels to be in a relationship with a covert narcissist, because it's so hard to identify So first, let's go there. You know, what is a covert narcissist? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are the signs that you might be with one? Yeah, I think that's the trickiest part. And I'll say that in my experience, most people learn that they were with a covert narcissist only after the marriage is over. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the reason for that is that covert narcissists will demonstrate their worst behavior when they're not getting their way or when their needs and requirements are not being met. And so in the marriage, you know, as long as there was stability and things were the way they needed them to be, you might have seen these parts of them expressed to other people, but, and it may have come out sideways sometimes. And we'll talk about what shows up in the marriage that are indicators. So we'll talk about that in a minute, but oftentimes it is after through the divorce process and in hindsight, where someone says, oh my God, these behaviors are textbook and really on full display because you're getting that real side of your spouse that, you know, they're not happy with you anymore. And so it's, it's all coming out. Um, You know, I think that covert narcissism is trickier because oftentimes I hear people saying, you know, my spouse is a really good person. They're often celebrated in the community. Mm -hmm. They're helpers. They're, you know, quote unquote, nice people. Yeah. Everyone loves them, right? They're so social. They're fun. Yeah. Yeah. They are do-gooders often. They're givers outwardly, but in the relationship, they're not givers Mm -hmm. as much. And there's a lack there that thematically tends to happen. And usually they're married to someone who is both a giver. And so they give more to the relationship with the covert narcissist than they receive. That's where they're more comfortable. And they tend to be married to more people pleasers. So that person is kind of going along being the good spouse until suddenly they find themselves in a position that's vulnerable to infidelity or that sort of is wondering why they're feeling the way they feel in their relationship. Right. Yes. And I feel like covert narcissism is so hard because it seems like everything is fine. It's usually very calm. It's not really that, you know, erratic and 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 conflict-ridden, yet there's just this disconnect between, you know, missing. your partner. There's something missing and you're you're being blamed for a lot of things that they're doing in this roundabout way. And I find that with covert narcissists, like they on the outside want to present that they're really caring and compassionate, yet they don't actually have that true empathy. They still want it. They just do that for everyone's sake and to show, but they're sticking with their plan and they actually don't really care what you think, no matter what. That's exactly right. They have empathy. They have it for themselves. At the end of the day, they have it for themselves. So what's more helpful, I think, and, and we can get into this, is talking about the actual behaviors that show up in the marriage that prevent real intimacy. So any narcissist that you're married to is going to be um, incapable of real, true intimacy, of mutual love, care, support, safety. They are not capable of that. It's more helpful to identify the behaviors that prevent that real intimacy because the labels can be a little bit um, too big sometimes. Mm. And I think there's some studies that show that only 1% of the population is narcissistic. What that makes me think is that there's a lot more narcissists out there, but um, Mm -hmm. you need to stay focused on the behaviors and how they're expressed, not the textbook diagnosis. 
Right. Well, because we can't get narcissists into help anyways, because they don't think they need it. Or they'll go to like one or two sessions when something has happened, whether there's been a breakup or divorce, or your spouse has begged and pleaded for you to go. And then they're good. You know, they're more of like, you are the one that you should be going to therapy. I think that we're all worried about you and your mental state. You know, I'm good over yeah, here. They'll go to whoever's going to support their story. And if they do go to therapy, they will either quit therapy once the therapist tries to present them with their own behavior or hold them accountable, um, or they'll blame, you know, someone else all day long. So there's just a general inability to take responsibility for yourself. And I think that marriages to narcissists are marked by a lot of wounds in the marriage that can't really get worked through because the narcissist spouse has such a fragile sense of self that they can't tolerate interpersonal, um, real disagreement. They can't be held accountable. Um, they don't want to be responsible for your happiness. Mm. They, they really don't. And you end up feeling it. So over time, there's this slow creep where you're kind of like lonely in your marriage. Something's missing. You realize, you know, they don't really seem to care about you the way that you care about them. There can be a lot of little signs, but at the end of the day, they're keeping score. So anything you're asking of them, any complaints that you have, complaints are actually really healthy in a relationship because um, they're signs of requests. They're, they're things right. that we want to listen to in a relationship. They're things that our spouse wants from us. They don't want to hear your complaints mm -hmm. because their ego is too fragile to hear them. And they're going to counter it with something that you do that's equally um, annoying or that they don't want to do to meet your needs or that, you know, you're not doing right. It's a very unsatisfying interpersonal relationship. Yes, it really is because it, especially with coverts, I find that it is so subtle, you know, that you are trying to confront them on something that's, that's upsetting you or bothering you or behavior, call them out. And somehow this is in my experience, somehow it's twisted in this roundabout way where then you find yourself apologizing for something that you didn't actually do. And then you walk away feeling like, okay, like I remember so many conversations and even fights because I would escalate it because I just felt like I was banging my head against the wall. Like, am I speaking Greek? How is this not coming through to you in terms of how I'm trying to say it? And so for so long, I would also doubt myself thinking like, I I'm not communicating myself clearly. Like, I don't know what words I can use. Maybe I'm I'm not speaking really well and articulating my feelings and thoughts. And over time, I realized that it was just because I was met with this covert behavior that was shutting me down, twisting it around, then throwing back in my face all of the reasons that I have, all the things that I had done, all of the ways that I, you know, didn't show up as my best self. And then walking away from that feeling bad, but also so confused and frustrated and resentful at the same time, but not having a clue really what to do with it. So I know if people That's are so listening. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to just pause because what you say is so important because it chips away at your sense of what a real relationship is supposed to look and feel like. And so over time, you become really disconnected from what it's supposed to be. And you start questioning yourself and you start you know, your, your self-esteem and your self-worth gets really shaky. Mm. And so just what you described about feeling really uncertain about what you should even expect. And am I the problem? That's what lands people vulnerably on the outside of their marriage. And then they meet somebody who demonstrates to them the way interpersonal interaction should look and feel. Yeah. Oh, I'm actually heard. Oh, this person actually cares how I feel or what I'm saying. Oh, they're actually listening to me, appreciating me, seeing me. Well, that's the way relationships are supposed to be. Yes. Yes. And you finally feel like, okay, someone understands what I'm saying. Like I'm not crazy. And, you know, the signs in a, in a covert relationship, you know, a, one sign I also noticed from myself was this kind of attempt at making me feel guilty. Oh, you just think I'm a terrible father. Or you just think I'm a horrible person. Or you just, you know, you don't like my cooking or you don't appreciate what I'm doing for you. And it would be like, no, 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 I do. But like, I'm trying to explain something else. So I know that people are listening are like, okay, I need identifying factors because my spouse, there's something up. They're not this grandiose person, but there's something on the inside that isn't 
feel right and I feel manipulated. I feel unheard. I feel like everything is all my fault and there's no accountability. So what are some common behaviors that a covert narcissist will display in a relationship? Yeah. First of all, there's a sense of entitlement. That entitlement is part of what comes out very strongly in the divorce process. But within the relationship, they are more likely to receive as a state of being than naturally give. And when they are asked to naturally give or held accountable to be a real partner, they resist because they feel entitled to not be accountable to anybody else. Mm. So that, that sense of entitlement, and again, it can be really subtle, but if you feel like there's some of that imbalance and a sense of entitlement around their behaviors and really not thinking about how their behaviors affect you, they just take sort of what they need to take. Mm-hmm. And you're left saying, well, hang on, could you do this differently? Or I'd really appreciate that. And they might hear you, they might not, but nothing really changes. Yes. There's an entitlement to stay the same and to put their needs and wants first. Um, second is the manipulation. So they'll make you think that you are the problem. There's um, blamefulness. They're kind of like a mirror. They just like bounce everything back to you. They're not those people who are going to say, oh my God, I'm so you know sorry I hurt you and tell me more about what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. They're going to twist things so that you feel like you're crazy for even saying what you're saying or wanting what you're wanting or asking yes. what you're asking for. Um, the lack of empathy is the biggest one. Like the ra- lack of genuine empathy, right? Like genuine. I think that sometimes they can pretend, oh, I care, I care, but really it comes down to it. They don't. Oh, there, there's a big difference. So empathy is one of those things that narcissists do very well um, because they have learned how to pretend to be empathetic in order to meet their own needs in the mm-hmm. relationship, in order to get what they need from another person. So it's another way that they manipulate. They use empathy as a manipulation tool, but it's not genuine empathy. Genuine empathy is I'm really understanding how you're feeling and I'm feeling the pain that you're feeling and I want to help and be in it with you. They do not want that. Mm-hmm. And the way this can come out in a divorce is there can be a big you know, sense of smugness. There's sort of this like egotistical mm-hmm. attitude. Yes. So the lack of empathy comes across in that, that smug. Right. Attitude. Right. And that victim sense, you know, like that story of like, oh, this is, this is not my fault. I had a couple of things to do with it, but really overall it was all of them, you know? They could even say they had a couple of things to do with it. That's beautiful. But um, yeah, no, usually that's not the case. They don't believe that. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. The victim story is a big big part. They can't have empathy for another person because their psyche cannot tolerate being wrong or being a contributor. And they actually can't hear Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. or entertain the idea. Yes. Too terrifying. And do you find that they typically like sort of bulldoze right over it? Like in my experience too, something will come up, I'll express how I feel. And it's almost like it just disappeared into the ether because the conversation will not even address that point that you're trying to bring up. And so you start to feel like, are you not listening or hearing me? And they will completely disregard or change the subject or bring something else up that didn't have anything to do with what you're talking about. And that's what I found the confusing part is there is no attention drawn to the almost the issue at hand that you're so thrown off and just just almost subtly where we're not even addressing that, how you feel. And I'm just going to keep the path of what I want and need from you. And I'm asking, so I've had the you know, experience with my ex-husband in terms of even after divorce, I'm asking you for a request for, let's say, holidays. And so I'm showing you, A, on the outward that I'm being doing this in case anyone's ever read my emails or texts, yet... When I come back and say, well, that actually doesn't work for me. Those dates don't work for me. It's the bulldoze. Well, I've already booked the time. So I'll be picking them up at this and this time. And it's almost like there is zero consideration 
for your feelings and your time at all. It's more of like, well, I need you to respect that I would like this time with the children because it's really good for them. And so I've already booked the trip on your time. That's the sense of entitlement. Yes. it's, And then you get so crazy because I understand people out there too are like, how is this happening? And why is this happening to me? Because it's not this huge fight necessarily. It's just this little, you know, this, these, um, you know, what do I want to call them? Like paper cuts over and over, just these subtle paper cuts of, yes, I don't care how you feel. And this is what I'm doing. It's a subtle chipping away. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a beautiful example of the entitlement and how someone moves through the world. They will just do truly what is best for them. Mm-hmm. And they're not sitting there concerned about how you're going to feel about it, your reaction, um, what you might want or need. So yeah, when you're a co-parent, the same thing happens. Nothing changes. Those behaviors stay the same. And the best measure is for you to sit there and go, wait, would I have ever done that thing and expected you know, not to run it by my co-parent, make a unilateral decision, already book the trip, whatever the thing is, like they're already doing it because they're not thinking of you. They're mm-hmm. not thinking of you. So, I mean, the one thing that I don't want is for people who are listening to say, well, oh no, my spouse doesn't do that. Or that didn't happen to me. It doesn't mean that some of these behaviors are not present um, or aren't subtly, you know, there. So I think mm-hmm. it's most important to um, think about how you feel and focus on the behaviors. And if any of these behaviors are present, it's a barrier to intimacy in general. That's going to make the marriage vulnerable. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, they're more likely to be concerned with themselves and what they want than be asking you like permission or anything like that. They're not right. bouncing off of you. Or this false sense of permission because they're really just going to do it anyways. Exactly. That yeah. Too. And getting to that, that point of, you know, narcissists have this have this tendency, We so, so we expect, to be the ones that are stepping out of the marriage, the cheaters per se. You know, it's the narcissistic person in the relationship that's having the, the affair. But let's talk about your post in terms of the reverse. And if you are in a relationship with a narcissist, a covert narcissist specifically, and how that really starts to make you feel like you had described it as like this illness that you just can't pinpoint and you just can't put your finger on it. And how does that then lead to vulnerability in a relationship where, yes, the person who is in a relationship with a covert narcissist can have the propensity to step out on their own? Yes. It's about the vulnerabilities that exist because narcissists have behaviors that prevent them from truly loving you, supporting you, and being a partner in the fullest sense. So what happens is that over time, you notice yourself feeling not how you should feel in the relationship. And you're more likely to either hold yourself accountable, um, try to work on it with them, or adjust your expectations. Those things, in my experience, happen first. Mm. And then you end up spending a period of time in which you are trying to resign yourself to the conditions of the marriage. And then usually someone else comes along and a connection develops. So first, let me talk about the first part, which is that you're in your marriage and you're feeling honestly quite lonely and unseen and unappreciated. Because again, The narcissist is a little bit arrogant, a little bit proud. They need to be the center of attention. They also maybe are with you because they like the optics of how it looks to be with you. You know, people who have poor self-esteem and become um, spouses who demonstrate narcissistic behaviors, they actually choose you because you're good for their image. Mm. And so partially, you know, you're doing something for them in in being there, but ultimately they're not there to fully love and know you in the holist sense. They're there to take care of their own needs. And usually that involves them looking outwardly Mm. for feedback in the world. And so you're sort of floating out there like, well, what about me? And they're so busy doing other things, focused on other people and things, because that's where they're getting their supply. Mm. 
and you're lonely, but you're trying to make it work. And you're trying to tell yourself that this is enough. Mm -hmm. And there's a shelf life on those scenarios in my experience. Yes. And you start to just, the, the hole gets bigger and bigger and your, your confusion starts to become more and more of why do I feel this way? And I can see how that would open the holes to your relationship because you're just so craving to be seen, to be heard, to be understood because you have felt like you've tried, you've been trying, you've been sacrificing yourself. You've been grateful as you possibly can be with this in this relationship. Because I also feel sometimes that I see covert narcissists give in very materialistic ways because they can't give in emotional ways. So it's like, yes, I'm supporting you and I'm, we're buying the house. We're Here's the car. You don't even have to work or we can do this. And, you know, these are the things that are supposed to make you happy, but it's the emotional level that the woman is like, I, I get it. I, see all these great things like thank you for all that but where is this emotional intimacy that it i crave so much and so then when you meet someone outside who gives you that emotional connection which i think is what women typically look for most that says holy you're not crazy you're just in the a situation where this has you have not been able to be authentically loved like you deserve you're not authentically loved because they're not capable of it. That's exactly right. And you are feeling the void mm-hmm. of intimacy, of connection, of support, of appreciation, of mutual giving and taking, right? I mean, there's a symbiosis in a relationship where it doesn't have to be constantly equal. That's not what it's about. It's not a checks and balances, but in a relationship with someone who has some of these narcissistic behaviors, it, it is imbalanced and they are keeping tabs very, very um, subtly underneath the surface. They are not going to give more to you than you give to them. That's just not going to be the case. So you can kind of end up feeling pretty neglected. And every time you bring your request to them, they're going to belittle you. They're going to diminish your requests. They're going to turn it into something else. They're going to you know, suddenly what were we even talking about? What about Mm -hmm. what I said? Um, And it's very unsatisfying and it really gets you nowhere. You're not growing together as a couple Mm -hmm. because there is no growing together. They're growing and then you're here and you're doing this thing called life together. Um, I, I was in a relationship with someone who after you know, in my divorce process, I learned was also a covert narcissist. And I remember in my marriage, we had just moved to our new town and I was, you know, shopping at the local stores. And there was this cute guy who managed one of the stores. And I had never felt the way that I felt before, but I found myself going back to this store, (laughs) back to this store just to see the guy. Yeah. And then I realized something is wrong in my marriage because Mm. I shouldn't be wanting this gaze from another person. I mean, it's normal to find other people attractive, but it was a cue to me Mm -hmm. that I was not receiving any of that at home. And at the end of the day, you know, my spouse did not compliment me consistently, did not appreciate me, did not see me for who I was, didn't value me for who I was truly. I mean, he could do lip service to it, but at the end of the day, it really had to be about him or he was not going to be satisfied. And I, as the people pleaser was very, very good at that role. Yes, I I could do that role all day long, but then the clue came from me noticing my own vulnerabilities for intimacy. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa, this is not me. So why am I feeling this way? Right. And then I went home And I started probing about our marriage. And then I found out he was already having an affair. So it's the kind of thing where there's so many voids at play. And you might be the one to step out because you feel deeply lost. Yes. It's like you're on more. Yes. Yes. That's how it it feels. That's how it feels. And you're like, is this what middle age is? (laughs) Right. Is this how it's supposed to feel? Is this what it is when you have multiple kids and you're just doing life? You know, I think that's the biggest question people ask. Is this just how it's supposed to feel? 
Um, and yes. that's what keeps them in it until suddenly they find themselves vulnerable and they might yes. stop because they're kind of floating. floating. <clears throat> I was floating. I was just floating. floating. Yeah. And you think, what is wrong with me? This must be what it's like, or there's something wrong with me. And let's talk about to the outward persona of, of covert narcissists, because I also found myself trying to explain my situation and how I felt to other people. And they, they just couldn't see it. Like you guys have the picture perfect relationship. He holds you on this pedestal. Like you look so happy and it's like, but there's so much else. Like what you see, what you guys are seeing is not the reality of what's really going on. And there would be such subtle, you know, ways that he would speak to me, what he would do that are not obvious to the outside. And so people find it really hard to buy in and believe when you're saying that, yes, I'm with a covert narcissist. They're like, oh, come on. He's not even, he's like so nice. Everyone loves him. He's not crazy. He's not very, you know, grandiose or aggressive or controlling. Yet it's all of these underlying things that you try to explain that a lot of people don't see on the surface. That's right. That's why I always say the only two people who know what it feels like in a relationship are the two people in that relationship. It is not ever up to us to determine how, you know, the quality of another person's marriage or committed relationship. And it is impossible to quantify mm -hmm. until that person gets negatively affected by the narcissist's behavior. But until it turns on them, that person is a wonderful person. Yes. Yeah. It's extremely impossible to explain. And I think until, until you might have those experiences where it's shown and it's an example to people that, that can, can witness it. You know, when, um, when my partner Mike died six months ago, you know, my ex-husband came to the scene and was like overflowing with compassion and empathy and there for me in a way that I'd like never seen. And, you know, don't worry, you'll get through this. We'll get you through this. I'm here for you. But there are like, 15 people, my closest friends, my family members, all the people witnessing this. And literally, I felt like supported. I'm like, this is, you know, I'm so, I'm so surprised and happy, even though we've been through this. And I had an affair with this man who passed away. And, you know, my ex-husband is totally being compassionate. The next day was like, it shut off. There was text being like, don't you think that this is an open door to my life? You cheated on me. You had an affair with him. Don't think that I have any empathy for you. You need to remember what you did. And it wasn't until I was able to have all of the people that I've been like sharing all this for years with see that and then read the text and be like, holy, what? Like, that was sort of when I, my, my whole sense of relief was like, finally, <laughs> finally, you get to see what I had been dealing with. Not that I felt like I needed to justify it, but it was that moment where I could finally let it almost go for myself and stop holding it, stop trying to justify it or explain it because it finally showed itself, which mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people are able to have that experience of it's finally revealed itself to those who need to see it you feel really alone and you feel like you're trying to, once again, if we use that illness metaphor, it's like a, a little vague, naggy, chronic illness that you can't diagnose until you do, but you can't explain the symptoms and have them really like mean anything to anybody else. People are yeah. like, well, I don't know. He seems nice to me. When the rubber meets the road, they will be nasty. They will manipulate you. They will make you feel crazy. They'll bait and switch you. It's essentially a form of deep emotional immaturity. Mm -hmm. And it's that immaturity that prevents them from having real relationships. So someone who was not a narcissist would have come to you and said everything on the day of the funeral or when, whenever that encounter happened. And there would be consistency, mm -hmm, right? There's not consistency because again, they're not doing it for you. They're doing it for themselves. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I like what you said, bait and switch. I've heard this before. So explain what that, what that specifically means and what that looks like. 
This is why relationships with narcissists or or anyone with a compulsive personality disorder or dysfunctional um, pattern of behaviors, this is why the relationships actually are so powerful um, and why we stay longer than we should in these relationships. The bait and switch is the whole idea of like hope springs eternal. So they will lull you into a sense of security or they will be on good behavior or they will be kind or they'll give you these things that really in the scope of a normal relationship are actually breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. Um, But you end up sort of like waiting, you know, for the next one or using it as an example of, you know, oh, I guess I was wrong. Like they really are a good person. Whoopsie doodle, you know, uh, onward. And then they disappoint you again. They hurt you again. They don't show up. They're entitled, mean, fall asleep, whatever the thing is, they crush you again. And so it's this bait and switch of normal, quote unquote, normal behavior, Mm -hmm. which relaxes your defenses, lulls you back into that security, brings you back to being that person you were in the marriage who said, okay, I guess everything's going to be okay. And then they turn on a dime. The rules change, the markers get moved. Uh, They never said that thing. It's all gone. Yes. Oh, yeah. Are they trying to butter you up for something that they want? Right. I'll see this often in divorce where, you know, there's this hot and cold all the time. And one, the covert narcissist will be all of a sudden just kind and, and putting these, like you said, breadcrumbs out, giving you what you want, offers, being really kind and nice. And then they really want something from you. And so what is it that they want? And then when they don't get it, they withhold all of that and you know, are back in that fight mode. And you see it sometimes like, oh, I love it when we're getting along. Why can't we get along? You know, it's we shouldn't be fighting like this. And then when we say no to their request, of course they go off the handle and now we're the bad person again and it starts all over. That's right. You have to remember that it's always all for them. So if you take the mentality of like a a six or seven-year-old, right? Kids are really egocentric. And the mind of an adult who has these behaviors is not that different. So when things are going their way, they're happy. And as a parent, you're happy and you're well. And then when things aren't going their way or they can't do that thing, or you displeased them or someone upset them, they're going to throw a massive tantrum. Mm -hmm. Same thing for an adult who has these behaviors. They are going to tantrum. And sometimes for covert narcissists, that's an internal tantrum. So you might see the narcissist, they actually um, have some pretty um, aggressive behavioral expressions of their anger and discontent, but it's never directed completely at you. Or if it is, you know, it's not as combative. Maybe they throw a plate across the room or they bang the counter or they, you know, scream or whatever, but then, then it dissipates. And they're not going to be the ones that come to you to apologize. So they're not the repairers. So I want to also bring that up too. If Mm. you find in your relationship that you're always the one who is doing the repair, again, you're taking on that parentified role. They are still in that entitled, immature child mindset. Mm -hmm. They're not going to come to you and say, hey, our relationship's more important than this fight we got in, or I'm so sorry that I hurt you that way, or you know what, you're right, I I didn't let the dog in when I was supposed to. And now it ran down the block. No, they're not doing that. They're not. And you're left out there going, well, if I don't apologize and repair, if I don't step forward, then nothing's going to happen because they're Mm -hmm. just moving on as if nothing happened. And that's part of the crazy making. They just move on like nothing happened. And then, you know, you're left there. So it's all part of the this is all part of the bait and the switch and the flip flopping of behaviors and Ultimately, at the end of the day, the question that you want to ask yourself about your relationship is, is this person more concerned with themselves overall than they are about me and or the health of our relationship? Right. Yes. That is the key, key question for sure. And how they make you feel in that too. Like, how do you feel about when, you know, one party likes to, wants to bring some attention to their their partner in terms of these are the behaviors that I'm noticing, this is how I'm feeling. And then it's quickly flipped where, you know, you're the narcissist, you're the one that needs mental health. I find that you see this a lot in terms of it's the narcissist themselves that is going to flip it and then call you the narcissist when you start to call them out on their behavior. A couple of things. 
first of all, when you have lived with narcissistic behavior in your relationship, it's you're not your best self as a partner either, because you're not your highest and best because you can't, they're not going to meet you there. So you are demonstrating maybe some regressive behaviors yourself just to try to get your needs met or you're despairing right? or you're confused, right? And then there's also something called reactive abuse. So when you've been in this relationship, there's actually, you know, subtle, significant damage that gets done psychologically. And then you may, again, express yourself towards them or act in ways that they can point a finger and say, that's narcissistic. But you are doing it in a way that is reactive to a bad pattern of behavior in the relationship and in that person. So once you get out of that relationship, you can come to a place of health and wellness and stability and go, I would not use those behaviors in my relationship because I can actually talk things out and be two adults and create something together that's safe and harmonious and work out difficulties mutually, those kind of things, right? We, We both take responsibility for ourselves and we create something together that feels good. Um, with a narcissist, not so much. And so they are very likely to blame you because they need to blame you. That's one thing that's consistent across the board. And you also are not your highest and best most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. That's such good advice. Now, one thing before we kind of start to wrap up is I wanted to get into this question. How does it work? And is it possible? And do you see it often where two narcissists get into a relationship with each other? How does that dynamic work? Because I do see that sometimes in my personal life and in my client life, where one was a narcissist that's more obvious or more covert that we know, and now they've entered in a relationship with a different kind of narcissist. Yes, those are... Because women can be them too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is not gender specific at all by a long shot. Um, Two narcissists absolutely can and are together. It's really a relationship of competing needs and competing importance. It's a competition, but it's not an overt competition. It's a subtle below the surface competition and they're using each other for optics and importance and an esteem boost. Right, right. So there really isn't that depth of emotional connection like a healthy relationship would be. I mean, on the outside, it is because maybe there's a lot of good function that happens. They function well together, whatever that looks like, or they can have a good time together. But that's because of like you're saying, the optics of it is they're both needing each other for that perception on the outside. And you see it where, you know, I, here's all the things I do for you. You don't do anything for me. But the moment I ask you for help, how dare you ask me because of all the things I've done for you or what I've been through or this and that, right? There's There's a lot of that verbiage. Mm. That was a beautiful example. There's a lot of, well, everything I've done for you, (laughs) there's all the scorekeeping and all the tit for tat and all of that stuff. A lot of times relationships with two narcissists can be sticky. They stay together because they're like, well, I'm not going to leave. You know, you leave first. It's a competition (laughs) of the wills. It's a battle of the wills. And oftentimes there's multiple affairs. Um, Oftentimes it's, you know, it's kind of just the way things are and they are going to get their needs met by staying intact. Mm. But there is not real intimacy and connection in the way that, you know, another person who doesn't have these emotionally immature behaviors would, would want a connection to feel like. Right. And would that kind of relationship be as emotionally damaging or are those two people just completely unaware of their emotional needs and more out for the outward, you know, whatever other optical needs or material needs they, they need in that relationship because they're not able to connect on an emotional level. That's a great question. I don't know. I'm going to be honest. I don't know the answer. You know, is it damaging? I would say that the behaviors are damaging to anyone to experience, but I think it with narcissists, it becomes a little bit more about like a game mm. and there can be something very intriguing about staying in that push and pull. Right. It's not healthy and it's not productive, but if they're both narcissists, I could see it being sort of an addictive pattern. Yeah. 
And let's just take it one step further of children of a narcissistic relationship or a narcissistic parent, because I do get this, this question often, you know, of how do I prevent my child from being a narcissist like their parent? Like, what do I do? How can I, how can I help this? And what do you say in that situation? Because especially in divorce, when now you've separated and the narcissism of, of that one parent is almost more magnified and you have even less control than you did in the marriage. And now you're sharing these kids, you're trying your best. And sometimes it feels so hopeless to be the one who's always trying to model the right things, the better behavior, the even identifying how this is not right, or that's passive aggressive, or that's manipulation, you know? How do you suggest parents help their kids navigate this? You said it. You have to be the corrective experience because when you get divorced, you're not there for 50% of their experience with the other Mm co-parent. And the child may be subject to a lot of those bad interpersonal behaviors that are subtle but damaging. A lot of times kids don't receive it the same way adults do because kids are more easily manipulated and kids can feed into a narcissist's um, supply because kids are reliant on their parents and they get a lot of their needs met, the adult does, by Mm -hmm. the love of the child. Mm -hmm. When the child becomes older and they start pushing for independence and they start displeasing that parent, that's when the psychological confusion becomes a little bit more palpable sometimes. Right. That being said, you know, I think you do have to be the corrective experience. So if they come home and they tell you, you know, daddy said this, mommy did that, whatever, instead of being reactive, hear them out, say, well, that's not what anyone should say to you. That's not how that should go. And keep modeling and working through it with them and help them understand what healthy interactions are actually supposed to sound like. Um, You can even ask them, like, did daddy apologize for that? And when the answer is no, okay, well, in our house, we make sure we always apologize when we hurt another person. So you really just are wanting to teach them what a relationship's really supposed to look and feel like. And sometimes that's overtly taught by Mm -hmm. having those kind of conversations. And then it's also taught just by modeling. Yeah. But I think as they get older, you can process it more with them. Yeah. And it is a task. Like you do have to do the work. You do have to be able to start to put that, that corrective behavior in when you're with your kids and to be able to model what you want to see instead of what they might be seeing on the other side. Um, and my last question to you, cause I'm curious for if you could have identifying factors of, of, for people who are listening, how can you identify, or is there even, are there identifiable differences between a male narcissist, even covert, and a female narcissist, because they do identify or appear differently. Are there certain things that set them apart? Are there certain commonalities that men and and women as narcissists will display the same? Or is there a difference? That's a great question. And I, I don't know that there is a difference. It's really on a spectrum. And it's a set of behaviors that is more demonstrative of their self-esteem and their need for um, entitlement and attention. And I think anyone can be a covert narcissist. Mm. Anyone can be an overt narcissist. Male, female, or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's ultimately when that person is always kind of controlling the narrative and um belittling you in subtle ways and invalidating you and not holding your needs as important and worthy and significant to them. doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. It matters how you feel in the relationship. Right. And that feeding of that victim story, you know, like that to me is the biggest, is the biggest you know, identifier is that they're holding on to that victim story so tight because they do need that attention on them of like, poor you, you know, I can't believe you've gone through this. And, you know, I don't know how you, how you're handling it. And they really identify with that position so strongly and getting help and changing that and transformation and growth and all those things aren't really on the table for them. No, they're not possible. And that's the other important thing as we wrap up that I want to say, stop expecting them 
to be someone they're not. Mm. Do not go to the hardware store to get milk. (laughs) (laughs) It is the same bait switch Hope Springs eternal idea. Once you understand that that person is not your source to be met, to be appreciated, to be filled, to be, you know, in the type of relationship that you need. Now we can stop the crazy making. Mm -hmm. It's when you still are expecting something from that person that you continue to never get that you are caught in that cycle as well. And that's why affairs can happen because then there's a connection that happens outside of the marriage that fills all of those things that becomes the corrective example for an interpersonal relationship because this person isn't demonstrating those behaviors and the affair happens. Yes. Yeah. But stop expecting the narcissist to be better than they are. Right. They are not interested in meeting your needs and they are not interested in changing for you. And they are not interested in acknowledging their part in the breakdown of anything. They're just yes. not. No, no, fair so, enough. And I think that's let also, go. <laughs> yeah, got to let go of what we cannot change, right? And it doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, accept them for who they are, but accept it for what it is. Exactly. And do the research, right? And Because there's a lot of grieving that comes along with realizing these behaviors are present in your marriage. You need to actually grieve the relationship. You need to grieve the version of yourself that chose that person, that stayed with that person, that allowed for those behaviors. There's a lot to take care of and be gentle with yourself around in that so that you can learn and grow and correct your own experience in whatever relationship comes next for you. But go educate yourself, read about it. Um, take stock, sit with the ideas. Some things will not seem like they are relevant. And then later on, they might become relevant. So all you can do is pay attention and um, take good care of yourself in these relationships. Yes. And I know that if this hits home for you and you're feeling that this could be your situation and this explains a bit more of how you're feeling, then you are not alone. There are so many of us out there who have experienced this too and feel it and see it all the time. And we are here to support you. So Lauren, just, you know, another second time, let everyone know where they can find you. So if they are feeling this way and they would love your support and your help, and I know that you have a book coming out soon, which is going to be really amazing for people. How can they find you? Yes. On Instagram, I am at Lauren LaRusso and online I'm laurenlarusso.com or theaffairconsultant.com. Amazing. Thank you for this. This was powerful. Thank you. And I have some books and resources, so maybe I'll post them. um, I'll send them to you later. So people listening, you can put in the show notes. Beautiful. I would love to do that. Absolutely. So I'll put those in the show notes and thank you all for tuning in today. Lauren, thanks for seeing you. Thanks for coming again. It was so nice to have you. Great to see you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce. We hope Cindy and her guests were able to put your mind at ease and help you make the right decision for your marriage. We wish you a beautiful week.